Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Michael Feng, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. Thank you. Great to be here. Michael, um, I was just looking through your bio early and you've got a fascinating uh, two halves to yourself from uh, the way I look at it. One was sort of your pre-crypto and hummingbot uh, part of your career and, and then there's a hummingbot and we'll come back to what hummingbot is and all, and let all our kind of listeners understand who they are, what you guys do and, and so forth. But let's just start with yourself uh, first. So you started on Wall Street, but where did you study before that? Yeah, so I studied finance, actually. Uh, so I, I was a pure uh, investment banker and trader up until about 12 years ago, actually. So I spent the first uh, nine years of my career basically as an investment banker and a trader in traditional finance. And then after that, I kind of saw the light and then moved to tech. Fantastic. We'll save that tech, uh, seeing the light story for, for a little bit. Did you study at Wharton undergrad and then you joined Wall Street? Yes, exactly. So I studied uh, finance in, you know, in undergrad. I was in, I was in undergrad business school at Wharton. And at Wharton, pretty much everyone that graduates does one of two things. They either go work in management consulting. This is like McKinsey, BCG, Bain, or they go the investment banking route and they work at, you know, Goldman and you know, other banks afterwards. Now, so I, I had a few, there were a few brave souls that did something different, but I followed the herd of lemmings like everyone else. You know, went to Wall Street. The only difference was that I really I was I was um I didn't like the fact that my friends in the investment banking division or IBD as it's called they were working like hundred hundred hours a week you know and that just sounded just, you know just really really ridiculous to me. So um, I chose a job that was on the trading floor, but also basically doing banking. But on the trading floor, it was a little different. Hours were a little better. You know, you could go home at like ten p.m. <laughs> instead of two a.m. That's why I was I was doing banking. But I was creating basically more derivatives and structured products on the trading floor as opposed to uh, in the investment banking division. Right. So this was at Salomon's. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. And this is this is the part that's just super interesting as well. So you actually joined the uh, the CDO, Collateralized Debt Obligation Desk. Was that your first posting or you kind of did like a rotation around the bank and somehow ended up there because you chose it or you were kind of forced to go there? How did that happen? I actually chose it because um, I actually remember interviewing with different groups in the trading floor before I took the job. And um, the CDO desk, it was called Structured Credit back then. It was always the most, that was also the most interesting to me because I had read uh, books like Liar's Poker 
and fiasco and um and all of these books around like you know, basically the start of the the financial engineering industry uh when i was in college and because i was always kind of like technically minded and i was like you know played around with computers as a kid that was actually the section of finance that really appealed to me to me i still remember the prospect of like taking a portfolio of assets and then splitting up the risk and reward and allowing people to choose where they sit on that curve and kind of what exactly customized kind of risk they take that just made sense to me and so um that's why i really like the idea of slicing and dicing a financial structure and creating these new types of instruments if you will uh with different risk reward characteristics I mean, now this is 2001, 2002, so we still haven't got to the kind of subprime of 2008 and the kind of the, how things blew up. But during this period, basically, you were sort of the entire seven year run, you were sort of like kind of growing with the desk. And, and I guess the desk was probably like a couple of people and they kept growing into sort of a huge machine within Salomon, did it? Or? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. When I first joined, um, the, the Citigroup had hadn't even done one CDO yet. It was like kind of like, you know, it was they were th- talking about it. So when I joined, they did the first ones. And um, I actually created the first one that was backed by mortgages because before that, they talked about it, but the market wasn't mature enough for them to do so. But then uh, starting in like that 2002, 2003 time period, there was like a large, you know, large of like mortgages being securitized. And so, um, yeah, so we took a bunch of like residential mortgage-backed securities and created a structure. And the hard part was honestly more convincing the rate agencies to define an approach. And so they could actually assign ratings onto these instruments but unfortunately what happened just to kind of like you know summarize for your audience what actually happened is that um the rating agencies use the same methodology that they use for corporate bonds and they basically applied it to securitized products like mortgage-backed securities and unfortunately they actually made a really critical but basic statistical error when doing so because for anyone who's taken basic statistics there's a premise called a central limit theorem. And the central limit theorem basically says that when you have like a set of assets, the more quantity, the more units of assets there are in a portfolio, the more the mean variance and other statistical properties of that pool starts to centralize. So this is um basically it's it's you know, if you flip a coin, if you flip a coin, you know, once or twice, the probability that the average flip is might be heads, might be tails. But if you flip a coin a thousand times, the probability of that you know entire trial that that it's the heads probability is probably very close to fifty percent. So it's kind of like the, the larger the sample size, the more that the um, the, the characteristics of the pool kind of centralize into a single average number. If that makes sense. So that's that's the central limit theorem. And unfortunately, because of that, essentially what it means what it meant is that the correlation between two pools of assets, the more assets there are in those two pools, the more those two pools are highly correlated. Uh, however, the Moody's and S&P, they assume the same correlation uh, as between two pools as between two individual assets. What it meant was that they were assuming something like 30% correlation or 45% correlation when they should have been assuming something like 95% correlation when applied to, on a pool basis. And so unfortunately, because CDOs and all kinds of structured kind of like securitization instruments, they're basically based on two properties, default risk and default correlation. So if you get default correlation wrong, what it means is that your ratings are completely you know, skewed. Something that should be AAA should be much lower. Something that's much lower is probably you know, higher risk because the analogy I use is it's almost like, it's almost like um, when you have a CDO, it's almost like driving through a minefield. You know? So um, ideally, 
a triple A tranche is like a tank, can withstand lots of hits. A lower rated tranche, like a double B tranche, has like a small, you know, car with very little armor. So it can't take a lot of hits. So now the question is, what kind of minefield do you want to go through? So something where the assets are not very highly correlated, it's like the mines are kind of like interspersed or just dispersed throughout the minefield. So then a large tank can take lots of hits and go, go through. But if the assets are highly correlated, it's almost like the mines are clustered together. And so there's like a big cluster of mines together. And so that's why when a large tank you know, hits that minefield with lots of mines clustered, even a really highly protected tranche, like the AAA tranche with lots of armor, that still gets hit. So the key, I would say, this, this is actually, in my opinion, the key to understanding the financial crisis, which was that agencies, Moody's, S&P, and Fitch, you know, they applied the same methodology they did to corporate bonds to securitize products. Unfortunately, we all missed some basic math errors, and it resulted in you know, assets that were rated AAA that should never have been rated AAA. And it's obviously that started to unfold. And, you know, we saw it again, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Lies Poker about Michael Lewis, but obviously the big short kind of ran through this whole period in, in, in book form and movie form. But when you were sort of Citibank packaging these CDOs, what I still to this date don't understand is that uh, you were meant to package this and sell them off onto hedge funds and third parties, right? You know, other investors. But yet City like took this like tremendous loss by holding billions of this. And, you know, so why why were these assets still held on on, on the balance sheet? Let me take some time to explain this because this is the other, I would say, incredibly stupid part of the financial crisis because we were on the sell side of the bank. And so we were creating these instruments that were AAA rated. And because of the extra yield involved, these AAA rated instruments were had a lot higher yield, so higher spread than um, other AAA instruments. And so, for example, a AAA tranche from a subprime mortgage-backed CDO was trading those days something like LIBOR plus 50 basis points, whereas um, a normal AAA tranche like the Citibank senior unsecured bonds were trading like LIBOR plus 10 basis points. So in some ways, if all you care about was just kind of like maximizing the yield for a given credit rating, these CDOs, AAAs were really attractive from a yield standpoint. And so the Citibank Treasury Basically, the other side of the floor from us, that division was responsible for just spending, basically taking Citibank's balance sheet and buying you know, AAA securities. So it's almost like, and this is actually why Citibank had an advantage vis-a-vis -vis other investment banks, because we, we could basically create AAA CDOs and sell them to our counterparts you know, at the other, other side of the bank, because they wanted to hold them because their job was to maximize the yield on a portfolio of investment grade bonds. Incredible, eh? It's absolutely incredible. And it's still, I'm still, everyone's still learning new things about this period. Unbelievable. Thank you for that. And then, so what made you make the switch basically away from TradFi and into technology, essentially, and crypto? I was in it, you know, basically just structuring CDOs, you know, selling them to investors, doing that job for seven years at Citibank and JP Morgan. But when the bottom fell of the market in 2008, I think, you know, they, they were like, well, I was laid off. I took a job like uh, hawking private equity funds, you know, for some smaller fund, did that for two years and just got to a point in my life. This is after doing finance for nine years, 2010. And I, I was like, what's the point? All I've done at that point in my life was created these you know, structures that had cost a lot of people their homes and their jobs. And I was just severely disillusioned and honestly, really depressed. Actually, I felt I had no skills. I had you know, wasted my, my career and uh, I was basically useless as a person. 
<laughs> so that, that's when I decided to, yeah, I quit my sales job. I applied to a few schools in the US and I was very fortunate to get into Stanford for engineering. I moved back here, you know, basically started um, you know, taking classes at Stanford and just was ready to just leave finance behind for good. Right. But then Hummingbot came along, which is, I guess was with your with a, a, um, a friend of yours or who, who you knew at undergrad? After a couple of years at Stanford, I decided to be a tech founder. Uh, so I started a company. But it was my first company was um it was we used uh, computer vision to basically the same heuristics a human eye uses to detect um, tables and paragraphs and PDF files and extract them automatically you know using you know, these like machine learning based techniques. So we guys created a tool that would kind of you can upload a PDF file, pull out like all the tables and try to you know allow you to you know format them in Excel uh, nicely. It was a good idea I think, but it, was, it wasn't really a company. I didn't know how to build a company back then. We ran that for about two, three years, and then eventually we were acquired by a company called Nitro. They're the, one of the larger PDF software manufacturers today. And then both me and my co-founder, we worked for Nitro after the acquisition. Uh, I was head of product, and he was head of machine learning. And this is the same co-founder that you guys then went on to found uh, Hummingbot as? Different, actually. Different, yeah. But it's, uh, it's my friend Max. Um, he actually afterwards he went to work for Atrium, the legal software company, and now he's uh, yeah he's he's you know kind of like in the middle, in between different things. Uh, but I would say that experience was a really good one because I think it just taught me how to how to kind of like run a company. And even the acquisition, even it was like a, a very small acquisition that just allowed us to pay back our initial investors. But just kind of going through that almost like that first kind of like test like beta run, if you will, at starting something. And seeing it kind of end up in somewhere, it was just a really good education for me, just to learn like the A that I could do it, and B that you know seeing like seeing what we could have done better the second time around. So um, I know having bought just integrated into CoinFlex for our perps and spot markets, but would you tell our listeners who are not familiar with you guys who you are and and what you guys do? Yeah, so uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Hummingbot. Hummingbot is the leading open source framework that people in crypto use to build trading bots. And uh, this may sound a very esoteric part of the industry, but because trading bots are, you know, almost they're an indispensable tool for um, market makers to provide liquidity, but some exchanges also run trading bots, provide their own liquidity. And now we're seeing, you know, individual token projects also uh, run our software and provide their own liquidity for their own tokens. It's just become something like a need that people have. And um, I think... Um, what we, it was a need that we spotted early on about three years ago because we used to run a hedge fund. And um, knowing that it took us like weeks to build an integration to an exchange and seeing that other funds, other individual traders were doing the same thing, we thought it would make sense to create an open source project that we could like just build integrations to exchanges, but get other people to also contribute you know, their integrations as well. And so um, today, Hummingbot, after a few years, it's become a project that just integrates with lots of exchanges and people can just build their bots on top of our software instead of having to reinvent the wheel. So coming from a sort of hedge fund model, trader model, where, you know, where everything was, uh, you know, you build and you keep everything to yourself because obviously the edge is in, in having something that's faster, cleaner, more efficient than the next man. Why did you go down the open source route for Hummingbot? Why didn't you make it a, a paid for service or a, a hedge fund in itself, for example? Originally, it was more because we didn't know what to do. It was the first thing we did was create a hedge fund. But unfortunately, um, there was a misunderstanding with the SEC, the US SEC, where uh, they thought we were doing some type of ICO thing and selling it to retail. We weren't. 
But after they kind of went through the whole investigation, they were like, well, you guys did have a website. So uh, we, you know, we think you should do a settlement. And at that point, we already spent like $300,000 of legal fees just dealing with this. So um, this investigation thing. So we just said, okay, we'll, we'll shut down our hedge fund and you know, pay a, pay a small fine and move on. So after we closed our hedge fund, this is December 2018, we just didn't know what else to do. We did know that open sourcing it would have value. In addition, uh, we got a developer grant from ZeroX, you know, a decentralized exchange, one of the early decentralized exchange protocols. We said, if you guys build a connector to Binance and you build a connector to our exchange, Radar Relay, we'll give you a grant because then people can, you know, kind of siphon liquidity from Binance and make markets on Radar Relay. That kind of gave us an early indication that we were doing something valuable. And then what happened was we realized other exchanges also had the same needs. And so we started to partner with exchanges to kind of like, you know, grow out this project. And then it kind of snowballed. So I think the main thing we focused on after launching Hummingbot at that time, we were probably the only you know, trading bot that actually came from professional kind of background. And we were backed by, you know, venture capital, whereas all the other trading bots at that time were kind of like side projects that some individual trader had created and published. So they were working, but they weren't, you know, very professional grade. And they weren't kind of like, they weren't. They didn't have great, great document, documentation and all the things that you know larger open source projects have. So for us, I would say the, the main challenge initially was really about trying to find a way whether this was sustainable or not. You know, because obviously open source projects are great for everyone, but in order to keep it sustainable, you know, we had to find a way to make money. And so that was actually, I would say, our main challenge for the first two years after launching Hummingbot was basically proving to ourselves and to our investors that they could actually back this and have some way to monetize. Michael, what is the monetization model then? Because obviously you raised capital from uh, initialized uh, capital, uh, Series A round. You've, you've grown the team size significantly last year. And so what is the kind of the rev model here, given this open source? Yeah, I'm happy to explain this. So uh, we have three main business models at Hummingbot, and they are exchange partnerships, the minor platform, and then a pro, like a pro solutions. So I'll spend a bit of time describing each one because I think this is actually pretty interesting. And when we first got into this, when we first launched Hummingbot, we had no idea that any of these were even possible. We were just concentrated on just creating something that people wanted to use. But we, we did find that there were actually some interesting ways to monetize from creating an open source project. And I think this is a good you know, lesson for any other open source project out there. I do think that you know, there are creative ways to do this. So the exchange partnerships is because a lot of the value of Hungot comes from the fact that when someone runs a bot, they're trading like 10 times more often than they would if they were doing manually because they're automating something that's going to watch the market, right? So the exchanges, all find, they all find value in having people run bots. And they already have these existing broker programs, a lot of them, where they have some introducing what they call broker and they, give, they basically share some of the fees coming from that broker with that broker. So we kind of end up plugging into these existing broker programs. And the way it works is we add a custom identifier that basically registers that trade as someone using Hummingbot. And then at the end of the month, um, the exchange will give us about 30% of the fees generated collectively by users of Hummingbot. So today we have about 14 of these agreements with different exchanges and they're throwing off enough revenues. It's about $50,000 a month right now. And that's enough to sustain the open source foundation that supports Hummingbot. Yeah, it's like the affiliate scheme, like introducing, you know, for for those who are not familiar with sort of introducing broker, you know, cryptos, you know, kind of here, you know, put my code in, you can be an affiliate as an introducer. And, and this is no no doubt the same. Yeah. And so the, and the other two are streams. 
this first one is what's this, this is actually why we're able to separate the foundation from the company because these revenues, these exchange partnership revenues are being generated from user activity using the software. So we felt that that revenue stream belongs to the foundation and that's what sustains the, the open source project. The other two revenue streams are being um, basically, that's what powers Coin Alpha, the for-profit company that originally created Hummingbot. So the Miner platform is probably the one that most people are familiar with. The um, Miner is a decentralized market-making platform where people who run Hummingbot or any other software can go and provide liquidity to um, different tokens, basically who need liquidity. So the overall, the way to describe it, it's a two-sided marketplace that matches liquidity providers. So market makers, anyone who's running a bot and providing liquidity with their own capital, and it's matching them with liquidity buyers. So exchanges and token issuers who want to basically get market making in a decentralized way. Would I be correct in thinking of this? Uh, this so essentially, this is kind of your own liquidity pool, like a, like a dark pool that exists. Yeah, so the, the way to describe it, it's like we're not one pool. It's more like the infrastructure that enables this like pool like um, you know basically interaction, but for central exchanges. The way it works is we we have the token issuer, someone who wants to buy liquidity. Normally they would hire a market maker, but in our case they can just put up a reward pool. Let's say maybe like ten thousand dollars a month, and then we take that ten thousand dollars, and every minute during that month we allocate a small portion as reward. So um, there might be ten cents every minute. And then anyone who is making a market in certain trading pairs, and it's this one trading pair, every minute there's 10 cents of a reward available. And based on the size of your orders and the how, how tight your orders are in that snapshot that we take every minute, you're going to get a portion of that 10 cent reward. So it's kind of like every minute, you know, 10 cents are being basically flowed and dripped into the market in, in these blocks, in every block basically. And every block, as long as I, if I'm making markets and I, if I have orders in a certain in a certain snapshot, then I'm going to get the amount of reward that's commensurate with my activity. This was actually described in a white paper that me and a couple other people at Aquafa wrote about this model in 2019. This paper is called it's called liquidity mining, a marketplace based way to compensate market makers. Because the idea was that it's kind of like this reward pool mechanism. It's actually the same methodology that. When someone hires a market maker in traditional finance and they ask a the market maker to adhere to certain constraints. And so these constraints are typically things like, I have to provide this much spread, this much depth, and maintain this much uptime during the month. So what we did was we basically kind of took those contracts and we figured out a way to essentially like do it like a reward basis. So instead of like, I have to hire this one person, it's more like I can put up this incentive and anyone can kind of like get that incentive by providing the same activity, but it's almost like through a time period. So anyway, so the, the, I'm telling this because, so I wrote this paper, we published it in 2018. And then I told my friend at Uniswap about this paper. And um, this is uh, in BM 2020. And I was like, you know what? Like we actually designed this for order book exchanges, but we actually think it'll fit DEXs even better because DEXs, you already have the blocks. So then you don't need to take snapshots. You can just, you know, airdrop tokens every block. And so my friend at Uniswap was like, no, that's a good idea. <laughs> and then uh, six months later, 
Uniswap announced their token airdrop thing, and they actually called it liquidity mining. You know, the same name that we 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 gave you know our model as well. And this was actually really good for us for a while as well, because for the first two years, 2020 and 2021, the fact that there was liquidity mining on the DeFi side it allowed allowed us to also kind of you know, position against that. And now we were like, hey, we're doing quote liquidity mining on the central exchange side with the miner platform. Unfortunately, today liquidity mining, this word liquidity mining has taken on a life of its own. So now we, we we've actually stopped using that word liquidity mining simply because you know now it's like associated with all kinds of token scam. Yeah. No, not, I mean, not even, I mean, I'm glad it, it worked. It worked for you guys because even we, as a, you know, as a new exchange, we used Flexcoin, our exchange token as a liquidity mining incentive. And it was very hard, even though we'd sort of seen other, I think it was Fcoin and other sort of exchanges who had tried and failed at this. We you know we thought that we had a, a better incentive program, you know, for liquidity, but it was, it's still very, very hard to perfect, you know, and essentially market makers were just collecting and dumping it every day. And there was this, you know, huge inflationary issue that, and, and price action that came from it. But, you know, I think designed the right way. I think it's an amazing tool. I just haven't, this is one great design, the way you've done it. I just haven't seen it on a centralized exchange basis actually work that well. And obviously, there's other con- other awful connotations with it, which goes on right now. But, you know, I'm talking about the proper use of it or the intended use. And then there was the uh, the third side of the business, I guess, is it? The reason we designed the model that way is because what we found was um, any compensation scheme for market makers that is volume-based almost invariably ends up with gamification issues. But the way we designed our scheme was more around liquidity-based. So it was like you got basically a certain amount of reward for having essentially your order on the books at a certain period of time. And so so I think there's a more natural – it's almost like as a market maker, I take risk because I'm providing free options to the market. And so, yes, I make money for the bid-ask spread, but there is some value for me having my liquidity on the books at a certain spread to the mid price for a certain amount of time. So, so that's why actually why I think I actually do really believe that compensating market makers based on liquidity, it's not impossible to game, but I think it's much harder to game than if you compensate them based on volume. I do agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said, the you know, the three things of time in market, maximum spread and minimum size, it's a model that's worked really well in TradFi, right? On the exchanges, on Urex, on Life, on ICE and CME. So it's, you know, it is a proven model. Yeah. Awesome. And then, sorry, and then there was a third stream for the business, right? Yeah, the third stream actually is one that um, we're really heavily investing now because what we realized recently is that, you know, now a lot of market makers, token projects, exchanges are trying to run HummingBot, but they're kind of struggling using the basic open source bot. So Coin Alpha is building a, basically a pro layer on top of HummingBot. It's called HummingBot Prime. Uh, the idea is kind of, it's kind, of, kind of Amazon Prime and then we're going to keep on adding more features into it over time. But the, the basic, the initial version is an orchestration layer that helps people run, you know, 50 bots, 100 bots, however many they want. It's a hosted service. So they don't, have to, they, they, don't they can deal, they can basically run it in, a, in the cloud with a nice graphical interface. And it has some, te- some team features. So if you're running this as part of a trading, larger trading operation, you can kind of can limit access to certain members of the team and do certain things. But these are things that, because um, talking to our larger users of HoneyBot, the market makers, the larger token projects and exchanges, they're all looking for you know an easier tool to use. And so, um, oh, and finally, it has a backtesting engine as well. So people can backtest a trading strategy against historical data before deploying it live. So we think that 
obviously the, the basic version of Heimbot is something that's truly going to be, you know, community-based and, and growing. But we recognize that just like many other, other companies out there, there's open source stack, but then people need more products and services on top of that, especially if you're a larger company. I think that's actually probably going to be the, the CoinAlpha's main business over time. And we're really excited to deploy that for the first time in a few months. So we're already starting to accept beta partners into that. Overall, we think it'll be, it should actually just be just really good for the Hamel community because you know, even individuals are looking for some something easier to use than the basic version of Hummingbot. And so I think we can basically deliver that sort of service for them. Yeah, which kind of kind of uh, you know brings up a question which I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, curious what your views are on. You know, what attracts me to crypto, as a lot of people know, is, is the fact that you know it allows anyone to have direct uh, market access. Anyone can be a liquidity provider. You could be in there with a thousand dollars against someone with a, a million dollars, uh, and that's great. And obviously, uh, you know, firms like yourself, you know, also help facilitate that by open sourcing code. But we're obviously seeing this in the in the market making space. We're seeing this arms race, like the towers, the jumps. You know, they're basically you know massively upsizing in in servers and developers. And you know, Tower has I don't know 300 devs in India. Someone was telling me, you know, I've no idea if it's true, but but I, I, I would believe it just on crypto development, uh, trading development. And now they're talking about offering infrastructure as a service, some market making firms. So do you think this model is going straight to the TradFi model of an arms race, or do you think that individual traders? Uh, still have a source of uh, income, living, have a fair chance to make to do something good in crypto. More than that, I actually think smaller traders actually have a, have an advantage versus the larger ones. And let, let me explain why. Actually, so in some sense, the larger ones I think are have it tougher because um, it's almost like when you're trading with let's say ten million dollars, it almost there are two some markets which are almost too small for you to enter into. You know, so it's it's harder to trade a small altcoin. With very low liquidity, if you have ten million dollars on balance sheet, because a uh, you know it's like your size would just move the market, and so you can't play there. So it's almost like if you're too large, you have to play in the Bitcoin tether pair or the Ethereum or all the large coins. So you kind of like you can't trade on smaller coins simply due to size. And the other thing is, if you're, the larger you are, the more likely you're regulated. And so if you're regulated, maybe you can't trade on DEXs. Maybe you can't access some local exchange. Whereas if you're smaller, one advantage is that you can you can trade on DEXs. So right now, many institutions just can't trade on DEXs because there's a law that says they have to know who they're trading with on the other side. And so because on a DEX, you're trading with an address, a lot of players just can't, can't do it. Another example is access. We have a lot of users of Hummingbot who are trading on smaller local exchanges in the Philippines, Indonesia, and India. And so a lot of those exchanges especially the fiat ones, they basically say only people in India or the Philippines can actually make a market on my exchange. Those exchanges, it's like because Jump and Citadel can't even access those exchanges, the local players have an advantage. In some ways, I think the reason why it's like we we tend to serve the long tail, which means it's sort of like um, we do have a lot of people using us on Binance and FTX. But in some ways, uh, I think where we really add value is helping people bridge liquidity from Binance and FTX to the small exchanges. And in addition, because we're constantly adding DEXs now, I think the real opportunity for people in the future will be to like, you know, anytime Hummingbot adds a new integration to a DEX, you know, finding some arbitrage corridor between some small DEX and CoinFlex and just exploiting that ARB for a week or two until the rest of the market realizes that that's possible. So that's actually where I see most people using Hummingbot is it's not so much like, you know, trading big Bitcoin tether on Binance, but it's more of like 
finding the yeah the arbitrage corridors between Binance and every other DEX and small central exchange out there. That's a very interesting take. Yeah, where they aren't sort of restricted by legal compliance or even return on capital, right? Which is right. Uh, which yeah. is uh, it's not a percentage in game. It's uh, it's where you find a local niche, a little bit like the pit, yeah. you know, like on the floor where you kind of find your little options book product and and stick to getting knowledge. Michael, thank you for coming on. Mm-hmm.